friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning, picking up in this new series that will be uh, carrying us all the way through, about halfway through the summer, in one of Paul's oldest letters and a letter rich with application for us this morning. Uh, not long ago, I came across a, an article in the New York Times about the Titanic. It was written around the 100-year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. I guess that would have been about 10 years ago, something like that. It was an article that was meant to bring some texture to the life in that time and on board the ship using the range of, of clothes that the passengers were wearing at the time of the disaster. I think what inspired this article was that, that someone had gone down to the bottom of the ocean and recovered a whole bunch of objects that had been on the ship that when it went down had sort of filtered down to the bottom and were protected down there because you know, it was free of sunlight and really, really cold and it was like a nice refrigerator. Somebody had done, gone to the trouble of going down there to collect it all and there was like 5,000 objects from this wreckage that were going up for sale through some sort of auction. An auction they thought was going to bring in something like $200 million. Anyways, here's the way the article put it. After the ship broke apart, had struck the iceberg, it's breaking apart. The article says that the ship's contents fell more slowly, fluttering to the depths like grim leaf fall. And there in the lightless saline netherworld, that's a nice line, isn't it? A vast, in that netherworld, a vest, a trilby hat, a pair of laced boots, a belted valise, and an alligator bag, along with a huge range of artifacts they scattered across a broad apron of remnants. Big focus in this article was on what we can learn about the social status of the people who were on board that ship from the clothes that they wore while on board. Not just what social status they possessed, but how important it was to them to project that status while on board. The title of the article was On the Titanic Defined by what they wore. One writer put it like this, the Titanic was this stage where people were performing certain versions of themselves for all kinds of audiences. Another writer said, our clothing is an amalgam of what we are. The shoes, the vest, the trousers, the suit jacket purchased at different times. Clothes hold us together in so many ways. They're the closest thing to our bodies, our pulse. And there's something undeniably cool about all those artifacts. I have to admit that. I bet you can even see some of these artifacts at that big Titanic museum in Pigeon Forge this spring break when you're on the way to the National Park. But surely you can see there's also a haunting parable here. Can't you see it? All these clothes were pulled from the depths of the North Atlantic. All these clothes were, were littered across the ocean floor. All these marks of social status that once mattered so much to those who wore them could do nothing to protect them. Can't you see the parable here? The absolute foolishness of pride 
or even concern about where we rank over against each other in this life. One way or another, these markers and any hope we have for any status that comes through them ends up on the bottom of the North Atlantic. I was reminded this week about that article because this text that we're going to consider this morning is leading us one step further into the wisdom of this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And as we talked about last week, this letter, one of the main reasons he wrote it is that this church was obsessed with status. They were living in a status-obsessed town, and they had a lot of Corinth still in their hearts. They had been saved out of that world by Jesus and his death for them, but they still bore the marks of that world and the things that were important to the people around them. And the, the, the marks of that world, the things that mattered to them, were seeping into the church in ways that compromised the kind of witness the church was meant to give. So the, the, the text we're going to consider this morning is, is Paul's first opening salvo in this, in this barrage. <laughs> Think about this letter as a barrage of machine gun fire against that way of thinking about yourself in the world if you want to be with Jesus. This is the, this is the section of the letter where he opens up this, this theme for us and, and where he really begins to teach us that who Jesus is to each of us shows up in the unity between all of us. Who Jesus is to each of us will show up in the unity between all of us. That's why he wrote the letter, and today we get our first taste. I, I, there are three things to understand from this text. We need to understand the importance of unity. We need to understand the danger of division. And we need to understand the power of the cross. To understand Paul, as he lays out a foundation for the rest of the letter, we need to understand the importance of unity. That's point one. The danger of division, that's point two. And the power of the cross, point three. First, let me read the text for you. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word while I read beginning in verse 10 of chapter one and carry on through verse, or verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We first need to see, friends, the importance of unity. 
Uh, the first nine verses of this letter were Paul's introduction. It was his address, telling who he's talking to. It was his greeting, telling them what he was, what he was hoping for for them. It was his thanksgiving, telling them what he was thankful that God had already given them. Uh, and then we get to verse 10, and we get to the point. Verse 10 is the, the closest thing in this letter to a thesis statement. It's certainly the main subject for the first four chapters of the letter. And what he's talking about here is also up underneath a lot of what he's going to say beyond that. Look what he says he's writing about. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. He's basically begging them, pleading with them for one thing. Agree. Just agree. And then he flips it around and says that there be no divisions among you. Same thing, framed the opposite way. And he flips it back around again. I want you to have the same mind and to have the same judgment. Paul wants no ambiguity whatsoever. I'm writing this letter to you so that you'll agree, all of you. He wants unity. It's that important to him. This is so striking that he starts here for a lot of reasons. Uh, let me just give you one. Rewinding back to last week, you know, last week I tried to give you a, a nice flyover of the whole letter, some of the main themes that were gonna come up across the letter. And we talked about how, how much ground we're gonna cover because of how much ground Paul covers. He was jumping from one topic to another all through the letter because of all the big issues this church was dealing with. It was not a healthy church at this point. They had major struggles and major sins that they were apparently fine with at this point. Paul's going to correct them for basically endorsing some form of incest in the church. He's going to pounce on them for the rich showing up the poor, even when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's going to tell them not to participate in temple rituals, including prostitution. He's going to tell them these things because they don't get it yet. These are big issues to tackle, serious issues. They're issues where the clarity of the gospel and the public witness of the church to Jesus and the sanctification of God's people, all of those things are obviously at stake in these issues. And you think if Paul was writing a letter with, that kind of sta- with those kinds of stakes, if he knows he's going there, wouldn't you think he would start with one of those? You know, when you've got everybody's full attention, You start with your best stuff, right? The most important thing, the thing that burdens you the most, you go right at it with your thesis statement. And knowing that's where he's headed, well, it should tell us something about how important unity is that he doesn't start with the temple prostitution bit. He starts with his friends agreeing with each other about who Jesus is to all of them. That's what matters to Paul. And it matters for every one of those issues he'll tackle later. Be united. That's his plea. I think it's so important to Paul because ultimately the unity of the church is just as crucial to the witness of the church and to the glory of Jesus in that place. That's why it matters so much to him. And it matters so much to him because it mattered this much to Jesus. I mean, do you notice in verse 10, he says, he appeals to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that he just like cites the name. It means what Jesus stands for, Jesus' authority, Jesus' agenda. When he appeals from that name, he's appealing from all that Jesus wants for them and calls them to. I think he's, he, he's received from other apostles by this point, 
the record we received in John 17 of what Jesus prayed for on the last night he was alive, like right before he goes to die. Jesus uses his final big prayer to his father to, to pray for this. This is John 17, 20 to 23. Jesus praying to his father says, I don't ask for these only, not just these, these 12 that I've got around me, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. That's you if you're a Christian. Here's what I ask you for, Father, in my last prayer. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Their unity is part of their witness. Their unity is how the world comes to believe who I am. The glory you've given me, Jesus says, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That's Jesus' prayer. Paul has gotten it. He's caught that fever. And that's why he starts his letter where he does. Now let me give you one caveat and make one appeal to you. The caveat to give you at this point is that unity isn't Paul's only priority and it shouldn't be our only priority either. He has written other letters. We have record of them. And some of these letters, they're really sharp and actually call for division. The letter to, to the Galatians, he, he was writing to a church that, that was getting really, really fuzzy on what the gospel is on what you trust Jesus for, on how someone becomes right with God. And in that letter, he calls for division from the people who are telling untrue things about Jesus. That's too dangerous. The whole thing is lost if we lose the right connection to Jesus. The gospel's got to be clear. So he says, divide from them. He even says, divide from me. If I ever come back to you, Galatians, and I'm preaching a different gospel than the one I already preached to you, don't let me in the door. Unity isn't his only priority. It shouldn't be ours either. He, he's talking about them having the same mind and the same judgment. I think what he means there in verse 10 is that he wants them to agree on what matters most, to have the same judgment about what matters. They need to know together what they need to agree on and what they don't need to agree on. Later on in this letter, he's going he's to give them an example of something they don't have to agree on. What do you do with meat that's sacrificed in a temple as part of the rituals of that idol worship? Can you eat it or not? Well-meaning Christians can disagree about that, he says. He gives his own opinion, but he knows others in the church are going to disagree. Just follow your conscience and try to be loving. That's what he says. You don't have to have the same judgment about that because it doesn't matter as much. What he wants is for them to have the same judgment about the things that matter most. But here's my appeal. Here's the caveat. Here's my appeal. The, the unity may not be the only priority for a healthy church, but it is at the very least a central priority for any healthy church. It was for Paul because it was for Jesus and it has to be our priority too. One of the things we promised, the first promise actually, that we make in our church covenant when we join our church is a quote from one of Paul's letters. We promise that we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I wonder if you ever think of your work and your prayer for unity as one of the main ways you serve our church. I hope you do. You know, sometimes somebody will ask you where to go to church and how you're involved. I, 
I wonder if that ever happens to you, if you ever find yourself answering, you know, I go to Edgefield Church. I'm super involved there. I'll tell you what I do. I pray for unity a lot. I work for it too. I look for every opportunity I can find to try to build unity in my church. That's how I serve. That's how I'm involved there. I know that's probably not how you answer. You know, that's not what they're asking for and you don't want to be a jerk. So you just give them what they're looking for and you tell them, yeah, sometimes I help out in childcare or I'm on the music team or I work as an usher. And if those are ways you're involved in our church, thank you so much. We need you. We need more of you actually. So consider this an invitation. But I hope in your heart of hearts, you know that one of the most fundamental ways you serve our church is in your work and your prayer for unity. It matters that much. And if you want more, let me encourage you to listen to a sermon that was all about this from that series on John 17 back in November. I don't remember the date, but you'll find it in the podcast feed. It's on John 17, 20 to 26. It's called Perfectly One. And I think it's got a lot of practical ideas for how you can work to promote and to protect unity in our church. It's worth the listen or even a re-listen because of how central this is to our church's health. For now, Point two, we've seen the importance of unity. That's why Paul makes it his thesis statement in verse 10. But we really need to understand the danger of division because that's what's on Paul's mind from the rest of this text. The importance of unity just raises the stakes for their lack of it. And if we're going to understand the danger of division and why Paul's so concerned about it, We need to understand where division comes from and what division points to. That's the two things you need to understand if you want to get the danger of division, why we should be so concerned about it, why Paul was so concerned about it. You need to understand where it comes from and what it points to. Neither of them are good. Where it comes from. Let me just give you the short answer. Division comes from pride. The danger of division is that it comes from pride. That's the blunt way to put it. Here's another way to put it. We're going to have division whenever anything becomes more important for how we see ourselves than who Jesus is for us. We'll have division anytime anything is more important to us for how we see ourselves than who Jesus is for us. That's what was happening in Corinth and it could happen here too if we're not careful. Look at verse 11 with me. Paul is saying he's, he's received a report from Chloe's people. This is one of the, uh, one of the ways that, we, that he got his list of topics for this letter. One was they had sent him a letter asking him questions. Another was that somebody from them had come to visit him and had brought reports on how things were going at the church. This is a report that he got from Chloe's people that there's quarreling among them. And verse 12 gets at the nature of the quarrel. I follow Paul, one, of the, one group says, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or even I follow Christ. What's that about? We we pretty much know who these people were. You got Paul. He's the one writing this letter. He's the founder of the church and many others. One of the first missionaries sent out by the first churches to take the gospel into places in the Roman Empire that hadn't got it yet. Paul is the one who they have to, to thank for the fact that their church exists in the first place. And surely he had some loyalty there. Apollos was an early preacher in the church. He was someone known for his eloquence, for the, for the power of his sermons. And it's no, 
no, uh, no stretch to imagine that he was really good at preaching. He came out of Alexandria, which was like the Harvard of that part of the world. It was known for its education, for, for, the, for the, the finer things that you'd be taught and raised up into in that place. And he came out of that and put all of that training to use in preaching Christ. People loved his preaching. And he followed Paul in Corinth. After Paul had moved on, Apollos came in and did a lot of teaching there. Makes sense that some people would have rallied to him. Cephas is another name for Peter. Peter maybe never made it to Corinth, but he was legend. Peter was, was, was one of the main disciples. He was one of the leaders, even among the leaders. And he was known for his courage and his boldness and for the fact that he just saw things in black and white and just went for it. Some people rallied to that. Here was a man who didn't come from Alexandria. He was a fisherman. He was a blue-collar working man who just knew what was right and knew what was wrong and never let anything get in his way. Some people rallied to that. Christ, it's a little more mysterious what this party was about. It, it, it might be that it's Paul actually answering and him saying, you should be saying I'm with Christ, not with these other guys. It might be that there was actually a party who thought they had the ultimate trump card. Like you guys think that Paul or Apollos or Cephas is the way to go, but we follow Jesus. We're not really sure, but, I, uh, but, but basically it, it doesn't take much imagination to understand why people were lining up the way they were. There wasn't any kind of theological division here. Most likely it just came down to rhetorical, rhetorical style, to, to personality, to branding. As one writer put it, I mean, what, more important than the Apollos or the Paul or the Cephas or even the Christ in this list of, of, of statements is the I. It's repeated every single time on purpose for emphasis. He doesn't say, I follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. He writes it, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. The I is the point. It's not even so much that I follow Paul as maybe that I am an intellectual. I really like nice clear lines and carefully reasoned arguments or I I'm refined and have good taste it's Alexandria for me or I am strong and clear and convictional one way or another it's about branding it's about identity and it fits perfectly with what we know about this church in Corinth so many of them in their, in their culture would have been consumed by status and advancing themselves. And they put high marks on the, or high value rather, on the marks of learning and good taste. And they were putting the, on these teachers like you'd put on a branded shirt. Notice what this says about me. The division didn't come from doctrine. This division came from pride. Can you see how basic a human tendency that is? All of us, I mean, it's basic humanity is to find things we can use to identify ourselves with. We know who we are and we want others to know who we are through what we attach ourselves to. It could be almost anything as long as it has some combination of two features. It has to be important to us and it really has to set us off from the crowd. It needs to be important and it needs to set us off from the crowd. That's a fluid relationship, but you're looking for both of them. Sometimes it starts with something that's important to you. And therefore, in that thing, because it matters to you, you hope to be good at it. For me, that was baseball as a kid. I remember, I mean, as a kid, I loved baseball from my earliest memories. I loved playing it from T-ball onward. 
But by the time I hit my teenage years, it was clear that this thing that was important to me was not going to let me stand out from the crowd. I wanted to be an all-star, and I held on to that for a little while. But by the time I was 12 or 13, like I'm not even on the playing field anymore, much less on the all-star team. Going to need to find something else important to me because I'm not standing out here. Okay, I, I guess I'm, I'm actually doing pretty well in school. Maybe that'll now become important to me. So where I'm standing out becomes important. That's how pride works. It needs to be important and you need to stand out. And it's incredibly adaptive in us. Often hard to recognize in ourselves and that makes it very difficult to uproot. It, it, to me, it's just unbelievable how creative we can be at finding things to be proud of. You know, as long as it's important, as long as we stand out, it'll work. Could be how nice your house is or how modest your house is. Could be what you eat and drink or what you don't eat and drink. It could be what you know. It could be that you're proud of being a doer and not a knower. Could be where you went to school. Could be where your kids go to school. Could be how much you save. Could be how much you spend. I mean, we even identify ourselves by the clothes that we're wearing right now. Pride shows up where what matters most is what we don't share with others. Division comes from pride. And it's poison in the life of a local church. That's what's playing out in Corinth and we're not immune to it because we're a church full of humans too. That's where division comes from. Now, what, do, what division points to? That's the other part of this danger. In verse 13, Paul puts it succinctly and clearly. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, if you're dividing from one another, something matters more to you than Jesus. Because this division has nothing to do with him. Is Christ divided? Obviously not. But you are. So Christ isn't the point of your life, is he? These other guys weren't crucified for you, were they? What does that mean if not that the crucifixion and all that it offers to you isn't the point of your life? You're not interested in what he's done for you, but in what you do and who you are on your own. Friends, we have to be so careful that we don't put on Christ as a kind of base layer. You know, like a set of, of long johns that's warm and comfortable, but mostly hidden. You put on something else on top of those long johns. That's why you don't mind if, you know, no one sees them. You prefer they don't. That's why you don't mind if the guy sitting next to you has exactly the same pair as you do. Same color, same brand, same function. That doesn't matter to you. It's, it's base layer. What you put on top of that is what you want to be noticed. What you put on top is where you show your flair. It's where you identify yourself. Do you, Christ can become that for us. He can become a starting point, but not the all, be all and end all for who we are and how we know ourselves. It can so easily turn, to, to turn in our hearts to where what matters and, and what's noticeable is what we put on top of him. That's where we're more picky. For the Corinthians, it, it wasn't enough for them to be a community focused on Jesus. They had to have Jesus plus an inside track to something more exclusive. I'm not the kind of Christian that's with Paul. I'm the kind of Christian that's with Apollos. That's what you need to know about me. 
It's one thing to say all you need is Jesus. It's another thing to say all I have is Christ. He is all my hope and peace. He is all my righteousness. He's not this base layer that I put on under my bling. He's not my bottom floor for a ladder I hope to climb. He is everything and all other ground is sinking sand. Friends, Christian growth, growth in humility, what it'll look like from here to glory is just getting more and more sensitive to the pride that still lives in our hearts. Not that it isn't there, but that we're quicker to recognize it and slower to justify it. That we're quicker to recognize where it still is, slower to justify the fact that it's there, quicker to repent and to pray for the Lord's help in rooting it out. And to that end, I think one way you can make the most of our time in 1 Corinthians would be to to think this week about where you see this dynamic playing out in your own heart. Where can you see yourself identifying before others by something that has nothing to do with Jesus? Something that's important to you where you hope to stand out. Is there a theme that you can pinpoint? Is there something you know you're hoping others will notice about you? Maybe an area where you kind of feel threatened a little bit if somebody else is doing it too or has done it maybe a little bit better. If you can pinpoint a theme like that, let me encourage you to share that with a close friend. Maybe ask them if they can see it in you too. And then have it. Even if it's just a sticky note in your Bible on top of 1 Corinthians, have it in front of you as we walk through this letter week by week. Because the Lord has given this letter to us to help us fight against that pride. And it does its job. We've seen the importance of unity, hopefully, by now. And the danger of division. I want to leave you where Paul leaves them in this section. With the power of the cross. There's only one power that can overcome the pride that comes so naturally to us. There is only one power that can unify a church in the way that Paul wants to see this one unified. The only power to overcome the danger of division in our pride, the only power to source the kind of unity that makes Jesus look glorious is the power of the cross of Christ. And that's why Paul kept it right at the center of his ministry. That's why we got to keep it right at the center of our church and everything we're doing and at the center of our lives as individuals when we live out in the world. Let me show you where Paul emphasizes this and talk about how we can lean on this power ourselves. When when Paul uh, turns in verse 14 to looking back on his ministry among them, his focus there is on what he didn't do on what he explicitly avoided. In verse 14, he he looks back at how he handled himself when he was with them and he reminds them, look, I did not play into your games. I, I knew who I was dealing with. I knew how much status mattered to you guys. I knew the deck was stacked against you in this area. I didn't play into it. I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody, he says. He begins to walk it back. I, I, yeah, I baptized Gaius and, 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 I, and Crispus and, and then a parenthetical comment. Yeah, I guess I also did Stephanus, his family. Um, but even the ambiguity in the way Paul talks about it is him making a point. It doesn't matter who baptized these people. It's into the name of Jesus. It's their identification with all that Jesus did that matters. Not, not who it was that, that dumped them into the water. 
I didn't come baptizing, he says. Not because he doesn't think baptism is important. Because who baptizes who isn't the point. And then he talks about his preaching in verse 17. Same emphasis on what he didn't do. Yes, he did come preaching the gospel. That was at the heart of his ministry and what Jesus sent him there for. But then he starts talking about what didn't characterize his preaching. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, he says. In other words, not with impressive speech. Not with the kinds of rhetoric that they were hoping for. In Corinth, it was a big part of their culture, especially in the upper classes. As you climb the ladder, you, you develop a taste for the finer kinds of communication. They didn't have Netflix. It was entertaining to go hear somebody talk. That's like the best they had to offer. And so they, they, they would develop a taste for certain kinds of teaching. And people would come through on a circuit and teach for them. And, the, you know, you, you would, you, like watching a show at the, bridge to, at, at the Bridgestone, you, you knew who you liked and you knew why you liked them and you compared that with your friends. Paul says, nah. That is not what I'm here to do. You need a new category for the kind of ministry I came to give you. And just to make sure you don't confuse what I'm trying to do here, I'm going to avoid the gifts of rhetoric I could use. I could go there. I could do that. I'm not going to. Why? Verse 17. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. His whole purpose was to connect people to the cross. He wanted to show them the cross unfiltered and get out of the way. He wants that community unified in the same judgment, not on the quality of his sermons, but on the content of his message. He wants them unified on the cross as everything to them. Because the cross is where sinners come for life. And the cross is where pride goes to die. That's why he put the cross at the center of his message. Think about it. Right here in the middle of this status-obsessed, competitive, materialistic city, Paul wants a unified church. And when it shows up as unified, he doesn't want people saying, man, that Paul must be some preacher if he could get those people to agree and bring them all together. No! He wants people to know the cross did that. Look at that unified church in Corinth of all places. They're unified. Wow, the cross did that. What kind of power is this? Can you see how the cross has this kind of pride killing and unifying power? Can you see what it is about the cross that kills pride and that unifies people around what it stands for? It's always because the cross of Jesus says two things to anyone who looks at it anyone who sees it for what it is the cross always says this right here this is the storm that you're facing on your own this is what you've got to look forward to and this is the way of escape that God has made open to you the cross says this is the storm you're facing it's a serious thing to stand as sinners before a God who is holy and just and you can't, if you want to stand in his presence, you need more than a leg up in a crowded market. You need more than some way to stand out above the competition and get the recognition you're looking for. What other people think about you, how you stack up against them, it means nothing before this holy and just God. What God thinks is what matters. How we stack up against God's law, that's what matters. We owe everything to him. And as Paul puts it in Romans, all of us have sinned 
and fallen short of his glory. When we look at that cross, when we see the agony, the shame, the death of Jesus under the wrath of God, we are looking at what we deserve for our sin. And there is absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing we could do, nothing we could build, nothing we could ever acquire, nothing that can stand up to that storm. Your intelligence won't protect you. Your money won't protect you. It doesn't matter how fit you are. It doesn't matter how tasteful your decorating skills. It doesn't matter how fashionable, how likable, or how likely to succeed. When you look at the cross, what you see is judgment over anything we might use to identify ourselves. The cross looks at what we might use and it says, not good enough. The wages of sin is death. But at the, at the very same time that we're looking at the cross, at the very same time that we are seeing this is the storm we're facing on our own, we are also seeing the way of escape. There is hope. There is protection. There is forgiveness under this cross. It's a gift of unimaginable love. And it's all free. All offered up to those who don't deserve it. It's offered precisely because they couldn't deserve it. Because there was no other way to overcome the weight of our sin and to bring us to God. In the cross, what we're seeing is God taking on himself the penalty we deserved to give us the forgiveness we could never pay for and the only way out from the weight of our sin. You, here's another way to put it. You cannot possibly look at the cross, at what it says about sin and what it says about God's grace and carrying on, carry on wondering how you stack up against everybody else around you. Can't do it. And that's why Paul says the cross and nothing else. Earlier I mentioned how on the Titanic, the marks of status were all over the place, you know, and the clothes and the accessories and the dinner plates and the accommodations. Everywhere you looked, you were looking at marks of status. After that unsinkable ship struck the iceberg, it became clear they were going to have to evacuate. The crew began to hand out life vests to passengers. Famously, they were short on life boats. That's one reason so many people died in that disaster. But they had plenty of life vests and they handed them around. You can see pictures of these things online. They are not much to look at. They're boxy, kind of a drab brown color. Basically look like, like wearing a potato sack with armholes and big chunks of cork sewn into the chest for flotation. Not much to look at. You think anybody cared? You think anybody said, oh, if I put this on, it'll cover up my tux. Oh, you won't be able to see my dress if I wear that. I just bought it for this evening. I just, this is my first chance to wear it. You won't be able to see it if I put that on. You think anybody whispered, can you believe Mabel is wearing the same vest as Mary? Exactly the same. How embarrassing. What a nightmare. Of course not. That dress won't float. That tux won't float. No matter how great it's tailoring, no matter how sharp it looks, it's headed for the bottom of the ocean. Give me the vest. I need that vest. Give it to me now. 
The cross shows us the storm that we're facing and the only way of escape. When we see the cross for what it is, it has this unmatched power to bring unity to a local church. Just give it to me. Just put it on. I don't care if everybody else is wearing it. I want everybody else wearing it. Just, just get me what I need to survive. That's what the cross tells us. And for our church to stay centered on the cross, we need a ministry like that. That's why Paul built his on the cross and did nothing to empty it. And we're going to need that too in our individual conversations we have with each other. We're going to need it in, in, in the classes that we're teaching to our kids. We're going to need it in the classes we're teaching to our adults. We're going to need it in the way we encourage each other in our small groups. We're going to need the cross right at the center of our songs and, and what we're reading about every week and in the sermons that you're hearing. And in that light, let me, let me, I want to leave, I'm going to close by leaving you with one final application this morning. And it has to do with the, the teaching that you receive from your local church and how you can pray for it and encourage it. I want to go here this morning partly because it's an important part of our church culture and partly because it's right here on the surface of what Paul was talking about, the teaching of the leaders that they were, that they were looking to in Corinth and, and how the cross of Jesus connects to what he wants them to want from those who teach them. One way you can work and pray toward unity in our church is to pray for and encourage those of us who teach you to tell you about Jesus. Pray for us to keep him front and center. Pray for us to think and believe in our heart of hearts that he's relevant and worthy of all the attention. Pray that we won't get distracted by other things that might seem more relevant, more worthy of attention. Pray, you guys do a wonderful job of this, by the way. I'm wanting to stoke that fire and keep this going because so much rides on the consistency of our message about Jesus. See, here's the thing. In our church, among your elders, out there, among all the podcasts you can listen to, whatever other churches you may join, if God forbid you ever leave this place, you're gonna find a vast variety of teaching styles and personalities, different strengths and weaknesses, things you really like and things that don't work so well for you. You're gonna find that whole gamut among those who will teach you the Bible from now until, until your life ends. All that is just fine. And it's inevitable and there's no sense denying it. But friends, please make sure what you're praying for and what you're longing for and what you're encouraging is Christ right at the center with nothing to get in the way. One of my favorite pieces of music is a suite that, that Bach wrote for cello. The very first section of the very first one is, is this iconic melody. You'd probably recognize it if I were to hum it. I'm not going to. But if I were going to, you would, you would probably recognize it pretty quick. It's simple. It's beautiful. It's It's perfect. I often have this instrumental music like that playing in the background when I'm trying to read or to write. But I'll be honest, like when this one hits, I have to stop, set down my pencil or my book and just listen for the two minutes it takes for it to get through. Super distracting in a good way. I have, I don't know how many versions of this piece of music in my repertoire. I think I first heard it years ago when I was part of one of these CD subscription services, at least long enough to get the, the eight free CDs before the, the bills started coming due. Yeah, I was sent this, this version of this song played and performed by Yo-Yo Ma, the, cla the, the, the famous cellist, and it's, it's stunning. Then I found it later on a CD at the library performed on the banjo 
That was amazing. Recently, I came across the same piece of music performed by a classical guitar player that I really like. And it's so wonderful and famous as a piece of music. There's probably versions on the electric guitar out there and solo flute, maybe even accordion, who knows, or harmonica or something. It's a beautiful piece of music played beautifully by a vast range of musicians on a vast range of instruments. But here's the thing that's crystal clear about that piece of music. The song is the star. No matter who's ever played it, no matter where I've ever heard it, it's the song that's the star. It's been around for hundreds of years before Yo-Yo Ma ever picked up a bow. It'll be around for hundreds of years long after he's gone, there for somebody else to play. The song is the star. And that is Christ to our church and to our lives. He's the song. He has been beautiful long before any of us have ever drawn breath. He will be beautiful long after we are gone. And in our brief moment of life here on earth, with these fleeting breaths that he's given us, those of us who preach and teach get to play this song for the people we love most. It is an unimaginable privilege. And we are at our best when we prepare and pray and get up to teach with joy at the chance to show our friends something we saw about Jesus in his word. And we're at our worst as teachers. Anyone will tell you this. At our least joyful if we're ever concerned about what you'll think about us. Or worst of all, how you'll compare us to somebody else. The best way you can encourage those who teach you is to pray that they will have joy in sharing Jesus with you. And then to tell them not how much you love their sermons, but what you saw of Christ through what they shared with you. That is the work of unity in a local church that only stands together because of the cross of Christ. Let's pray that the Lord will make its power clear to us. Father, we, we do pray that you would carry on satisfying us at every level with what you've done in Jesus. That our satisfaction in him would protect us from our desire for any other basis for being known in this world before each other or before your throne. We want to stand in Christ. We want to stand only on the solid rock of all he's done. And we pray that you would unify our church around this message in Jesus' name. Amen.